Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Old mill towns like Fitchburg, Lowell, and Lawrence, Massachusetts are trying to remake themselves in a new image. We've already changed the way people talk about Lawrence. They used to talk about Lawrence in these whispered tones. Now they're like, wow, something's good maybe is happening up there. Maybe we should go check it out. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankowski. We'll take a look at what some so-called gateway cities are doing to provide economic opportunity. And we'll consider how the high cost of rental housing can hold residents in some towns back. We'll also sit down with the creators of the hit podcast, Crime Town, about Providence, Rhode Island and their hardworking mayor. I remember uh, leaving work sometimes late at night and the lights were still on down in the mayor's office. Looking for problems, solving problems. There's a, is there a problem with my city? Turns out one of his problems was the mayor's link to organized crime. And with news of the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus's demise, we'll travel to P.T. Barnum's hometown for a big top tour. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative. Eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankowski. Coming up, a podcast exploring the corrupt history of Providence, Rhode Island, and a field trip to the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport, Connecticut. But first, New England states have been recovering slowly from the Great Recession, and New Englanders have a gloomier outlook about their economic situation than the rest of the country. But here's the thing. In a place like Greater Boston, where things are booming, it can be easy to forget that nearby towns are still rebuilding. WBUR reporter Shannon Dooling visited two of Massachusetts's gateway cities, where communities are working to create their own economic booms. The hum of textile looms once filled the 19th century mill buildings throughout downtown Lawrence. Immigrant workers from Ireland and Germany were among some of the first laborers. Today, many of those mills are home to refurbished workspaces, buzzing with the sounds of artists, innovators, and entrepreneurs like Angie Jimenez, who's arranging pots and pans in the site of her future cooking classroom. I'm going to be teaching pies and cooking lessons, uh, cookies, different cookies for, for holidays so people can, you know, make their own and, and giving us a gift. Jimenez is a graduate of the Business Accelerator Program Entrepreneurship for All, or e for all which says it's the first of its kind in the country to offer courses and training in Spanish. It's no surprise that such a program would launch in Lawrence, where just about 70 percent of the population is Hispanic. David Parker is CEO of E4All, or A Para Todos in Spanish. He says after two years, graduates of the program have created 150 jobs in Lawrence and nearby Lowell, a key measurement of the program's success. Because manufacturing across the U.S., and certainly here in these cities in Massachusetts, has declined, the immigrant communities still exist. There's social services to help people, people who speak your language, who have built neighborhoods now, except the jobs don't exist. 
New England mill towns were once global manufacturing hubs, pumping out cotton and wool products, attracting immigrant workers from around the world. But one by one, the mills closed when faced with factors like modernization and global trade. The unemployment rate in Lawrence is now among the highest in the state, a dubious distinction the city shares with places like Springfield and Holyoke, all former mill towns now known as gateway cities. On paper, it might not be the most flattering title. State law defines a gateway city as a mid-sized municipality where the median household income and rate of education are both below state averages. But Lawrence Mayor Daniel Rivera says there's more to gateway cities than those metrics alone. Lawrence is a place where people work. We've always been a place where people work. Rivera says he's proud of the city's immigrant heritage and the work ethic he believes accompanies those roots. He says owning that immigrant identity has helped shift the image of the city. We've already changed the way people talk about Lawrence. They used to talk about Lawrence in these whispered tones and like not so great intonations. And now they're like, wow, something's good maybe is happening up there. Maybe we should go check it out. Despite ongoing challenges, Rivera says Lawrence is poised for progress, and it's only a matter of time until people recognize the city as an affordable place to live and work. That's the hope in many of the state's 26 gateway cities, especially those just close enough to see the glow of the red-hot market in Boston. But looking at a recent report from the Mass Inc. Policy Center, it appears Boston's boom remains largely isolated from the rest of the state. Benjamin Foreman is research director at Mass Inc., a nonpartisan think tank. Foreman says that while state investment in gateway cities is robust, it lacks coordination, which hinders significant impact, especially in places south and west of Boston. The biggest story in Massachusetts is the pull of Boston and how everything's been pulled into the orbit of the city. And, and so to that extent, the closer you are to that action, the better off you are as a small mid-sized regional city in our state. Only 40 miles west of Lawrence, another gateway city is also planning a revival. So do we want to go back and maybe talk about some of the placemaking, economic development aspects that we have? Fitchburg is a smaller city, about half the population of Lawrence. And today, a group of nonprofit leaders and city officials are trying to figure out how to infuse a little more vitality into Fitchburg's downtown. Mayor Stephen DiNatale, who took office in January, says the city's weak real estate market has yet to fully recover from the subprime mortgage crisis. So what does that mean? Well, nearly one in five homes in Fitchburg are underwater on their mortgages, according to real estate tracker Zillow. An old housing stock and crumbling commercial and civic buildings present another challenge, one that Mayor DiNatale says the city is addressing. Demolition. Uh, when I when I took over, the demolition figure for Fitchburg was about thirty thousand uh, dollars. This year, we're going to be spending close to a million. Dina Talley says that increase reflects a better system in place to identify blighted properties, as well as a renewed commitment to improving the community. That will take care of, in terms of removing some of those areas that that bring a, a, a neighborhood down. I mean, the challenge is more of those buildings than we can than we can deal with. So we're going to chip away at it every year. Fitchburg, a city once known for its bustling paper mills, is also chipping away at a new identity. Some of that work falls on the plate of New View Communities, a local community development corporation. Walking out onto Main Street, New View Executive Director Mark Doan sees more than vacant storefronts and sparse sidewalks 
he also sees opportunities and success stories. We have about seven businesses just right in this little section of Main Street that we work with. So Brothers Barbershop, Luis started it on his own. He came in for us, got a technical assistance. It's impossible to get your hair cut there now because he has so many people with him. Heading north of Main Street, Doan stops in front of the vacant B.F. Brown School, Newview's next big development project, which Doan says will be renovated into artist apartments. The old school is across the street from the Fitchburg Art Museum, an institution Doan says is integral to Fitchburg's sense of place. One of the things that we think of for Fitchburg, it is one of the cultural hubs of the area. It has the art museum, it has the university, and we want to build on that asset. This neighborhood in particular, it's one of the more diverse neighborhoods in north central Massachusetts, and that's another type of culture that we want to take advantage of because people who live here want to celebrate their own culture. Everywhere I look and, and with every example you've pointed out, it's this melding of old and new, yes. of embracing the history with, a, with an eye on the future. That's what it is. I think all great places, it's not just the old, it's not just the new, but it's being able to accept that change as opposed to being afraid of that change. It seems Fitchburg and Lawrence are embracing change, recognizing their milltown histories while crafting a vision of their future as gateway cities. And that willingness to change may be one of the most important indicators of success. That's Shannon Dooling reporting. To see pictures of her trip to the gateway cities of Lawrence and Fitchburg, Mass., go to nextnewengland.org. The revival of former mill towns is a long process, and as Shannon reported, it seems the closer you are to the boom that's happening in Boston, the better off you are. And the same thing goes for cities in southwestern Connecticut in the orbit of New York City. But here's the problem. Economic booms bring high housing costs, sometimes far exceeding what lower-wage workers can afford. That's especially problematic in many of New England's coastal communities. As rent prices go up, assistance for those who can't afford those rents is not coming very fast. Andrew Flowers has been writing about this. He covers economics for 538. Andrew, welcome to Next. Thanks for having me. Could you tell us the story of Makara Meng? She's a woman you met in South Portland, Maine. Yes. uh, Makara Meng is a single mother raising four kids alone, a little more than a welfare check. And uh, she had a very successful life through 2013, but in that year... Uh, everything crumbled for her. Uh, her and her husband at the time uh, had a business. They ran an international grocery store in, in South Portland, Maine. They owned a home. Uh, but that year, uh, Makara's mother died of cancer. They lost the business, and her husband left her. He moved to Cambodia, where uh, she had immigrated from three decades earlier. So um, at, at the culmination of all these uh, bad events, she lost her home after owning it for uh, over 10 years. She is, is sadly illustrative of, 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 a, of a general point, which is that millions of Americans um, in the U.S. are struggling, and, and in particular, Makira is struggling to find affordable housing in South Portland, Maine. She and her four kids that she's raising live in a three-bedroom apartment. They spend about $1,500 a month, uh, utilities not included, on that apartment. And she's been on a waiting list for over two years now to get uh, housing assistance in South Portland. Uh, but she's still on that waiting list two, uh, two years in, and it's going to last up to five years before she actually gets help. And while the government has established several housing assistance programs to help them, the vast majority of these poor Americans who qualify for the programs don't receive housing aid. And if they do, it, it's, it comes after years on a waiting list, uh, as Makara is going through right now. 
So, of course, one piece of this is the availability of housing assistance, whether or not you have to wait on a list for such a long time. But let's get back to the issue of just what affordable housing is. How is it defined exactly? In terms of affordability, uh, rents are rising, especially in expensive coastal cities. Uh, wages um, are also, uh, for low-income workers, uh, pretty much stagnant for the past 15 years. So this creates a burden on the uh, on the household side in terms of the income they have and, and what it costs to get housing and how the government defines this. So this is the data, data that backs it up. They define a household as being burdened by housing if they spend more than 30% of their income on housing costs, in, including utilities. And what we know is, at least through 2013, which is the, the, the latest data we have available, that only about 20% of, of, of poor households, that is those earning less than uh, $20,000 per year, only about 20% of them meet that, that threshold of affordability, meaning, meaning that they spend less than 30% of their income on housing. And this problem is getting worse. The, the share of these poor families that devote more than half of their income, more than 50% of their income to housing, housing costs has gone up over the last 25 years. So we have this really you know, uh, stark contrast between poor families uh, who spend a large share of their income on housing and it's getting worse with middle class and affluent families that uh, m- the vast majority spend less than 30% uh, of their income on housing. And then there's supposed to be housing assistance that would help people get through tough times like these. Or if you lose a job, you have medical expenses and and you end up needing to to rent an expensive place, an expensive town. But as as you've said, that housing assistance doesn't come very quickly or easily. No, it, it doesn't. Uh, and it's an interesting a mix of, of programs that uh, a family like Makira would approach the government to, to get assistance with. You know, so one program is Section 8, which is a voucher program that allows uh, a family that qualifies to get a voucher to then take to the private rental market. And uh, that voucher will pay any housing cost above 30%. So that, that they can pay up to 30% of the housing cost, and then the government will pay the rest through that voucher up to a, a fair local rate, a maximum rate of, of rent. Um, now, the problem with that program is that funding is essentially has been flat in recent years. So while it serves about 5 million people, that hasn't grown much over the last 10 or 15 years. The second program, even, even though it's smaller, it's public housing, actual government uh, built and administered units. Now, those only, public housing programs only serve about 2 million people uh, across the United States, mostly in dense urban cities. And actually, uh, that program, too, is, has kind of stalled out. It, the number of units peaked in 1994 and really has, has declined a little bit since. So one of the, the struggles for someone like McCara is her life's already been turned upside down, but, but she tells you, you know, I, I want to stay in South Portland, Maine. I want to stay in this relatively expensive coastal city. And in some ways she's stuck because she doesn't want to move, but she might not be able to afford to stay. Exactly. It's it's a real conundrum because uh, as I profile my story, Makara has her kids in the school system there. You have close community and, and social ties. You're trying to find um, maybe a better job for yourself in, in that city and you don't want to leave. But at the same time, if it's an expensive city, it can be hard, especially for you know a single mom with four kids. It can be really hard. And so how the, how the government through these housing assistance programs tries to deal with that is, well, number one, they vary the fair local rate that you're uh, allowed to get through the Section 8 voucher. So in New York City, you're, you're allowed a bigger voucher than you are in, in say, you know, rural Kentucky. And then also in, in, in the more dense cities, 
the public housing authorities are likely to build actual public housing units to, uh, to assist people. But the problem with in either scenario, if you're a family like Makira um, uh, and her kids who are trying to get affordable housing in, the, in an expensive city, the problem is even if you qualify for these programs, there's just an overwhelming amount of demand. So what I calculated is that two-thirds of families at or below the poverty line, they don't receive any housing assistance at all. So, so most people think, and I think this is pretty profound, um, most people that I spoke with about this story think that, oh, if it's like food stamps, if you qualify for this part of the social safety net, you're just going to get it. It's, it. But it's not true with housing. It's not an entitlement. Um, for many of these families, the issue isn't that they don't qualify for help. It's just that the help they need isn't available. So only you know a third actually get help. About 17% get a government subsidy through, through Section 8. They get a voucher. About 50, another 15% uh, live in, about, in, in public housing. And a very small percentage of these people actually get rent-controlled units in dense cities. But overall, two-thirds don't get any housing assistance at all, and it's creating an affordable housing crisis for low-income Americans. Andrew Flowers is an economics writer for 538. Andrew, thanks so much. Thanks so much. Coming up, we'll talk to the creators of the Crime Town podcast, who are focusing their first season on the corruption that was entrenched in Providence, Rhode Island. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and global warming. So if you live in a city, you appreciate it when your mayor is a hard worker. I remember uh, leaving work sometimes late at night and the lights were still on down in the mayor's office. He was looking for problems, solving problems. There's a, is there a problem with my city? That city employee, Paul Campbell, talking about Buddy Cianci, the mayor of Providence, Rhode Island, from 1975 to 1984. An Italian Republican in a city formerly controlled by Irish Democrats, Cianci loved Providence, and Providence, well, it loved him right back. But he also loved publicity, letting people know he loved Providence. It was said he would come to the opening of an envelope. Cianci later admitted that in order to get elected, he had to, quote, make arrangements. Arrangements, that is, with organized crime. Now, that's just the beginning of the stranger-than-fiction tale that unfolds in the first season of the podcast, Crime Town. Hosts Mark Smerling and Zach Stewart-Pontier know how to tell a crime story. They were behind the HBO series, The Jinx. We caught up with them to talk about the story of how Providence became the center of organized crime in New England and how the city has changed. Mark and Zach, welcome to Next. Yeah, thanks for having us. Hello. First of all, why did you pick Providence as the first location for your new show? Um, I have history in Providence. I married a woman, uh, an Italian girl from the Federal Hill area. She's from Smith Street, actually, which is another hill, uh, but very close. Through her father, I had met Buddy Cianci years ago when I was in college, and uh, I had become sort of a fan of Buddy's, and I watched very closely as he went through his... uh, trials and tribulations. How willing were people to talk to you about this time and these characters, uh, knowing that, that some time had passed, certainly, but, but you know, there's a lot of people who are tangled up in some pretty dicey stuff. I mean, did you find Providence opening their doors to you, or did you have a lot of doors sh- shut in your face? Well, we had a lot of doors shut in our face, but um, 
you know, we stuck in. We we started this two years ago, um, right after the Jinx aired, basically, within a couple months. And we just started doing audio recordings with people. We started with a guy named Bill Malinowski, who's a, um, f- you know, sort of renowned criminal uh, reporter, crime reporter up at the Providence Journal. And uh, he introdu- introduced us to uh, Charles the Ghost Kennedy, who is a, uh, a guy who was part of Wimet's clan under Patriarcha. Uh, as a young man, and then became his own guy, and and was ended up being uh, uh, arrested for drug dealing, and did sixteen years. And he uh, sort of introduced us to some more people, and it just took time, you know. I mean, you come to a story at a certain time in its evolution, and uh, and it'll open up to you. And this story of Providence in the seventies, eighties, and nineties, up until the end of Buddy in two thousand with Plunderdome. It, it was the time for it to be told, I think, and people recognized that. Charles Mansolillo spoke to us, you know, Paul Campbell, people in Buddy's administration, and Buddy was going to speak to us. Hmm. Well, why do you think it was the time to tell this story? What what was it about the, the evolution that made this a, a ripe time? Well, things have changed in Providence. You know, uh, the ethnic culture of Providence has changed. Providence has become more transparent about how it's governed. I think Providence right now has the most comprehensive ethics laws. They just voted in an ethics commission, I think. So, you know, things have really changed and people have changed. And I think that the recognition of that is uh, is important and people wanted to talk about it. And then from the organized crime side of things, that's, you know, obviously that's still going on to some extent, but nowhere near the level that it was going on during the time that we're covering in the show. So we, we've talked a bit about Buddy Cianci, and we're going to hear more of his story, but maybe you can explain to our listeners who don't know exactly who Raymond Patriarca was. Raymond Patriarca was kind of, I, I, I kind of think of him as the model for the original godfather for Marlon Brando. He was very quiet, very understated, but he was the most powerful mob boss on the East Coast and arguably one of the most powerful mob bosses in the country. His reach went you know, from Bible factories in the Midwest to Las Vegas. He had relationships with the New York families. He had relationships, obviously, in Boston. He he had a stronghold on New England, but he was also on the commission, you know, the commission of the, of the families that sort of run the organized crime across the country. He was very well respected. I mean, I think what's fascinating about him is that people don't know about him. They hear about Whitey Bulger, they hear about other gangsters that have became more infamous, but uh, above all those guys was a guy named Raymond Patriarca, and that wasn't by accident. That was by design. I mean, he didn't. He wasn't flashy like John Gotti. He didn't. He didn't like his picture in the paper so much. You know, he was sort of operating under the radar, um, and so that was very calculated. And he was also much much loved in that neighborhood and in the city. I, I want to play a little clip from a, a longtime resident of Federal Hill. His name is. Uh, Albert Berducci. He'd walk up and down Atwell's Avenue. He would talk to everybody. Anybody needed anything, they would get it. I'm not saying they would buy them houses or cars or anything else, but I mean, you know, somebody was in need of a few bucks, he would make sure that, hey, you got a tank of oil or a food basket for Thanksgiving. He never hurt. He took care of more people than he hurt. That's one of my favorite parts of the show, that long pause <laughs> after he says he never hurt. 
and and then and then he he corrects what he was going to say. But you heard that from a lot of people. People really love this man. What do they love about him? Well, you know, it's funny. Um, it's the same with Buddy, right? I mean, both these men were huge personalities in Rhode Island and Providence in particular, and um, and they had their dark side and their light side. And I think Raymond did help people. And before there was um, the rule of law in Federal Hill, when it was an Italian neighborhood with immigrants mostly, and the Irishmen were the police and the courts and, you know, were running the city, <clears throat> the Italians felt like they needed their own system of justice, their own political system. And Raymond stepped in and he provided a lot of security. So you could walk down Atwell's Avenue and you could, you know, keep your doors unlocked without any fear. Um, and I think Raymond was was sort of a powerful figure that way. And, and people people liked him personally, too. He was very avuncular. He was a very um, fatherly figure. So on the other side of the story, you have this young prosecutor who later becomes mayor. His name is, is Buddy Cianci. What, what's the first time these two really, really interact? It's, it's told early on in your series, and it's a, it's a really foundational piece in, in how we understand Providence over the course of the next couple decades. Yeah, well, Buddy was a young prosecutor, and, you know, just starting out in his career. And in you know 1972, there was a, a new trial for Raymond Patriarca, and uh, he was charged with the conspiracy to commit murder. And Buddy was one of the prosecutors on that case, and so they they tangled on that case, sort of as as adversaries, and that sets up um, this struggle for the soul of the city. You know, I mean, these two guys sort of go head to head for for many years to come. And of course, Buddy Cianci, as a, as a Republican, uh, was going head to head not just against a, a, a crime boss and his machine, but also against the the Democratic machine. Uh, we're going to play a clip in a moment, but maybe you can talk about some of the characters and and the way Providence was run before Buddy came into office. Well, you know, Democratic machine is not it's not just a thing of Providence. It was a machine that really controlled a lot of the cities on the East Coast and. Um, it was mostly run by Irish Democrats from immigrant families who had pushed uh, the wasps, so to speak, out of government and had taken over. And um, it was a patronage system. And uh, everybody looked after each other, particularly in a state like Rhode Island, which is so small, where everybody sort of knows everybody. It's very easy to fall into patronage where you're giving friends and family jobs. And then that quickly becomes you know, hey, I got to get reelected. So you get people to vote for me and I'll make sure that your cousin gets a job too. So there was a tremendous amount of fat or pork in the government. And Buddy came into that government at a time when it was just about to topple over. I just want to play a quick piece of tape. Uh, this is uh, a man named Larry McGarry, one of the, the characters who, who are part of that time. McGarry was the party chairman and a legend in Providence. He used a wheelchair to get around, and he operated out of a small, smoke-filled back room in the public works department. He was arguably the most powerful man in the city. They called him Mr. Democrat. Larry McGarry was the guy that ran, basically, public works. And the old story was that before you talked to him, he had a little cigar box on his desk. You had to make a contribution in the cigar box before you talked to him. <laughs> and there were bunches of guys like this. And so when, when Buddy runs, he runs knowing that this is the system, knowing he's got to play as part of the system, but he also runs a kind of anti-corruption campaign. 
talk about how he he balanced these two things, wanting to be a crusader against the system, but then needing to work as part of the system if he if he was even going to get elected. I think Buddy was very clever at that time, and he saw he saw an opening. And what was going on within the Democratic Party during his first run for mayor was that they were fighting each other. Larry McGarry was fighting Joe Dorley, the incumbent mayor. And Buddy recognized really quickly that there was a space for him um, after those two guys battle it out, that that the person who lost would be his ally. And so he makes a deal with the Democratic machine, um, the the very people that he's sort of publicly um, saying is part of the problem of the city. He makes a deal with those people to get elected. Here's a, a clip from uh, an interview you did with one of the mob enforcers you talked to. His name is Jerry Tillingast. I said, listen, here's the deal. There was four environmental control inspectors in the city of Providence. That was a good job. No, you get you go answer calls and stuff like this. You're on the road all the time. I said, I want two jobs, one for me and one for my partner Al. Between me and Al, we could grab 2,000 votes. That's big. He's okay. CNC said this. Yeah. And I says, I got your word on that. He said, yeah, it's okay. And this is one of the things, guys, that's so fascinating about your story is it it seems as though this isn't a years-long process by which you have a mayor who slowly turns toward the criminal element and and, and lets them in over time. Uh, This is a story in which it happens almost immediately, right? Well, this is always a question in people's mind, right? If If you're listening to a politician... Is he telling you something that you need to hear and you want to hear so he can get elected? Or is he actually telling you something that he really believes? And um, and that's happening. <laughs> Certainly that's happened in the last presidential election. So, you know, this is not a new theme. I mean, Buddy was a powerful force. He was a big ego and he he wanted to get elected. And in the city of Providence at that time, he could not get elected without dealing with two things, the Democratic machine and fellas in organized crime from Federal Hill. And to disregard those people was death. So he had to make deals on both sides. But that doesn't mean that both things can't be true. I think he did love the city, you know, and I think he did want to do good. And I think he I think both things are possible. Both things can be true. It's it's clear that that he loved the city. It's also clear it was important to him uh, that he was uh, part of the Italian American community. There, I want to play one last clip, and this is him speaking at the Republican National Convention in in 1976, and he's he's essentially taking on Jimmy Carter. Let's listen. For too long, ethnics have been treated as votes and statistics by democratic political machines that stifle their hopes laughed at their ambitions, and scoffed at their dreams. Yes, our Republican ranks contain many of us who are proud that we come from Federal Hill in Providence, because it shall be from the cities and neighborhoods that Republicans, independents, yes, and even Democrats, with names that end in O and I, or Z or Ski, They're the ones who'll help us with the big win, because when we win the neighborhoods, we'll win in November. He's reacting there uh, in that speech to uh, Jimmy Carter using the word Italian. 
but clearly he's he's saying a lot more in there. You mentioned earlier uh, this most recent election. I guess as you listen back to a speech like that, how many maybe echoes you hear of the type of populist politics we've we've heard in just the last year or so? Here's Buddy Cianci really trying to draw together a, a pretty broad demographic coalition of people who feel like they've been left behind in some way. Yeah, it's interesting, right? I mean, now we're we're uh, Trump is trying to bring the middle class white working the working class whites into the fold by making speeches and buddy was trying to bring immigrants to the republican party but it's not it's not that different right because buddy was also making deals on the side with the very machine that that he uh that he was sort of bemoaning there and we'll see if trump actually lives up to the to the rhetoric that he uh, that he spouted during his campaign i mean that'll be really interesting right i mean buddy did change a lot about providence but he didn't really changed the Democratic machine. So I, I was in Providence not too long ago, uh, like a lot of people walking around downtown, going to little bars and restaurants, and, and it's beautiful. The, the, the city is just gorgeous, and it's been seen as a model for a lot of American cities of that size in, in, in how to redevelop and reimagine itself. Uh, obviously, there's, there's an awful lot of educational influence there with with all the colleges and there's a lot of young people and that brings life to the streets but i guess i just wonder guys as as you talk to all these people about the impact that buddy cianci had how much do people say that that's buddy's town that the providence that we have today is is that way because of him or, or maybe in, in in spite of his influence i think in a city like that it had been neglected especially the italian parts of town have been neglected for so long um, and the people had felt disenfranchised by government, and um, the machine just kept rolling over them. And Buddy represented a break in that, regardless of whether he actually broke it. He did, he did change things for Providence, and he brought a lot of federal money in. He fixed up downtown. As you said, downtown's beautiful. It worries me a little bit that I see a lot of empty stores, a lot of empty office buildings. One of those buildings, that huge building in the middle of town, is completely empty. Um, so, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done to attract people into the center of the city. But Buddy laid the foundation for success. A last thing for you guys. How much does, does your mind change when you work on a project like this and you, you, you have some great stories, maybe some great storytellers, but then you really dig in? Have your minds been changed about any of these characters, either on the, the political side or on the mob side? I think it's in a it's a constant conversation that we have with each other of of, of how how we're feeling about about any number of the characters and I think we're we're pretty in touch with that swing. These are these are very gray characters and they're good and they're bad and they're in between and I think we try not to judge them and we try to just tell the the story in in the most honest way we can. Yeah, it's hard not to wince every once in a while, particularly with Buddy. You know, every once in a while we'll listen to something that about Buddy or what Buddy says, and you'll kind of, you'll kind of, I like this guy, Buddy Cianci. I, I don't want to feel like he's, he's, he's doing something wrong, but ultimately he did some wrong things. But th- those answers you just gave that, that really gets to why you guys like to tell crime stories. I mean, they're, these are really complex characters. Yeah. And the, and the stakes are very high. I mean, crime is the ultimate dramatic situation right? The stakes are extraordinarily high, sometimes life and death. So everybody's sort of reacting at a very high emotional level. 
and for reasons that are sometimes difficult to discern. There's a lot of gray area in the characters um, that are in Crime Town. I mean, nobody's good, nobody's bad. Everybody's sort of swinging back and forth from good to bad. And it's, you know, one of the one of the things we're we're aware of is that we're making you fall in love with mob enforcers who are funny and uh, and sort of charming. And we're making you fall in love with Buddy. Every every episode, you know, Buddy does something that you're a little like you wince at, but then you realize, God, he's he's so charismatic and so powerful as a person. And you got to give him a break because he's trying to do something good. You know, he's trying to change things. Well, uh, Mark Smerling and Zach Stewart-Pontier, thanks so much for spending some time with us. And congratulations on Crime Town. It's a great show, and we're looking forward to hearing more. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Mark Smerling and Zach Stewart-Pontier are the co-hosts and senior producers of Crime Town, a podcast from Gimlet Media. You can find links to Crime Town and a Buddy Cianci campaign video at our website, nextnewengland.org. This show, by the way, is also available as a podcast. Just search for Next New England in iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Coming up, a trip to the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport, Connecticut. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of housing and homelessness. Last month, the Ringling Brothers and Barnum & Bailey Circus announced that it will close after 146 years. The owner of the circus cited declining ticket sales after the decision to retire the elephants from the show back in 2015, and they also cited declining attention spans. While the days of the greatest show on earth may be coming to an end, the history of the show is rich, and one man, the father of the American circus, P.T. Barnum, has a very New England connection. Barnum was born in Connecticut. He was very active in his adopted hometown of Bridgeport, where he was mayor for a time. But it's his life as a showman that people are drawn to, and artifacts from that time are housed at the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport. Next, producer Andrew Moraskin paid a visit. I'm Adrian St. Pierre. I'm the curator here at the Barnum Museum. Barnum really created popular entertainment for the masses. Before that, it was kind of a seedy thing, sort of not respectable for families, especially not women, to go to any sort of theater entertainment. So Barnum really transformed entertainment into the basis for what we all enjoy today. The building is a legacy of Barnum to Bridgeport. He left the money to build it and the land. Unfortunately, he passed away before it was completed, but he had had quite a hand in uh, figuring out what the building should look like. Our building has all kinds of terracotta ornamentation, and when you stop and look, you see animals hidden in amongst the leaves and the flowers and things, and around the top there are historical scenes and busts of famous people. So it's really an extraordinary building. It is on the National Register. How did Barnum become so wealthy? You know, he started out from a rather poor family in Bethel. In his early 20s, he started a newspaper in Bethel. He did it for three years, and then he decided he really wanted to be in New York City. And uh, he, he just sort of did things to eke a living, you know, grocery store, boarding house, etc. But 
He had his eye on this museum at the corner of Broadway and Ann. So Barnum, through some very clever financing, was able to acquire the American, or he named it the American Museum, Barnum's American Museum. That's how it all started. What really drove him to wealth and fame was his meeting with Charles Stratton, little boy born in Bridgeport in 1838. Barnum was introduced to him when this little boy was not quite even five years old. At the time Barnum met him, he was only about less than two feet tall. Well, he was a very bright little boy, very affable, definitely had a gift, and Barnum thought, I could teach him to perform. With uh, Charlie's parents, they went to New York to Barnum's museum, and he became a performer. Well, Barnum gave him the name that we all know, General Tom Thumb. Some furniture, some that's Barnum, some that is Tom Thumbs. We are very fortunate to have a little canopy bed made of gilded brass. Unfortunately, not as bright and shiny because much of the gilding is gone, but it's a miniature bed that was custom made for Tom Thumb as a gift when he was on tour in the British Isles with Barnum in the 1840s. I guess we'd call that product placement today, but everywhere he stopped in the different cities, the uh, shopkeepers or the manufacturers would, you know, give him gifts. In contrast to this beautiful carved rosewood bed that was a gift from Barnum to Tom Thumb when he married Lavinia Warren. That was in 1863. It was the height of the Civil War, of course, and the newspapers were just filled with the, the tragedies of battles and loss of life and so on. So when the announcement came in early 1863 that Tom Thumb was going to marry this beautiful woman in miniature named Lavinia, Barnum being the expert promoter that he was, really made the most out of this big wedding in New York City. And even songs were published, you know, called the Fairy Wedding Waltz because they referred to this as the Fairy Wedding. about a, a miniature person teaching them to perform. Wasn't there kind of a freak show aspect to how Barnum started and, and made his money? Well, he, he did start off with showing an elderly woman. She was African-American. The story, which Barnum had not made up, was that she had been the nursemaid to George Washington and that she was 161 years old, I think. So she was very, very elderly and crippled. That was something that he did regret as he got older. That was not an appropriate thing to do. But in other respects, when Barnum brought people to perform at the American Museum, they became like part of a family. They had people who were extremely tall or albino or, you know, had physical differences, but he did not refer to them as freaks. He called them natural wonders. He, he was respectful of them as individuals, and they were quite loyal to him. And he was really giving good employment to people who would probably otherwise struggle to survive in a cruel society, shall we say. This is our storage area. I pulled some of the racks out to show you some things that are on the wall. There's a wonderful poster here that's not, not a commercial one in terms of the circus, but it's really a biographical 
poster called Scenes from a Long and Busy Life. And we love the subtitle, which says, The Son of the Amusement World from Which All Lesser Luminaries Borrow Light. And in the center, there's a, an oval portrait of Barnum. And surrounding that are these little vignettes, um, which show some of the key things that he had done in his career up to that point. We see the American Museum. We see him introducing Tom Thumb to Queen Victoria. We see him speaking before the state legislature. He, he gave a speech to um, ask that they ratify the 13th Amendment. Certainly a jack-of-all-trades and not a humble man if this poster was commissioned while he was alive. No, he definitely began to recognize himself as... I sort of liken it to the way Martha Stewart uses her image everywhere on magazines and everything she does. By the 1840s, he was realizing that people were as interested in seeing him as they were the you know, exhibits in his museum and so on. So this is a centaur. Now, this is, as you can see, a skeleton, um, half horse, half human. And um, as Barnum did with his American Museum, we invite people to come and look at it and decide for themselves if it is real. Barnum always liked to give people value for their money. One of his more famous exhibits was the Fiji Mermaid, which he had at the American Museum soon after he opened. People probably thought they were coming to see something quite glamorous. And instead, they saw this rather hideous half monkey, half fish. But, you know, people were talking about it, and they could come and say, well, I've seen it, and well, I think it's real, or no, I don't think it's real. When we were offered the centaur, we thought, this is exactly the kind of thing that Barnum would have shown in the American Museum. Thank you so much, Adrian. You're very welcome. I'm glad you stopped by today. Our visit to the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport, Connecticut, was produced by Next Producer, Andrea Moraskin. You can find out more about the museum at nextnewengland.org. Now, the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus may be closing, but at the New England Center for Circus Arts in Brattleboro, Vermont, aspiring circus performers continue to train. And in a lot of ways, the staff there say the future of circus arts has never been brighter. Vermont Public Radio's Howard Weiss Tisman brings us the story. It's Monday morning at the New England Center for Circus Arts, or NECA, and graduates of the program are taking advantage of the open studio. NECA is a training school for professional circus artists, and co-founder Elsie Smith is working with two aerialists who are practicing a flip high up on a single trapeze. Okay. I took it that way instead of that way. Smith co-founded NECA nine years ago with her twin sister, Serenity. They've both performed with Ringling Brothers, and a number of the center's graduates have gone on to work with The Greatest Show on Earth. Personally, I was surprised that they decided to close the entire circus portion of Feld Entertainment, so the Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey. I had been speaking with many people leading up to this about the idea that they were going to combine some of the different tours that they have, they're called units, into one tour. So I was surprised that they decided to call the entire thing quits. The producers of Ringling Brothers announced this weekend that the touring three-ring circus would give its last show in May due to high operating costs and declining ticket sales. About 500 people work for two traveling shows. 
The circus stopped using elephants last year, and that's cited in part for the declining ticket sales. Doug Stewart is a NECA graduate, and he was practicing in the gym Monday. He says for so many people, Ringling Brothers was their first experience with the circus. And he wonders what the impact might be on getting younger performers involved in the art. Like it was the first circus that I went to as a kid and for a lot of people Ringling is what people think of when you think of circus for the people that don't know what circus is. Like you ask a random person off the street and they have images of Ringling Brothers and it's sad that that image and that mentality of what circus is is no longer going to be here. Stewart auditioned for a spot with Ringling Brothers this summer and he was put on a waiting list. So that won't be happening. But Stewart sees other opportunities out there. As far as my dreams, I started my own company. There's a lot of smaller companies that are forming now, and I think the future of circus that I see is a lot more smaller companies and theaters as opposed to the traditional style and tents. Some people will say that you want to make sure that they're flipped the opposite direction so that they can't unlock, because it only lock, unlocks in one direction, mm -hmm. this way. Mm -hmm. The New England Center um, for Circus then, Arts so is this, busy this, this morning. There's a guy spinning inside an enormous wheel. A woman is practicing graceful moves on a rope that hangs from the ceiling, and a small group of performers spot each other as they try acrobatic moves across the padded floor. The performers are strong and confident. Their work is rooted in the centuries-old tradition of circus arts, but their movements speak to a contemporary art form. In America, the circus school, the training, the artistic playing of circus mixed with theater, circus mixed with dance, circus as a contemporary voice is still very, very strong. Smith says it's sad to see a venerable institution like Ringling Brothers fold up its tent, but there's another part to the story. Circus arts in America is changing, and this just really puts a public title to everyone out there that circus is changing. We've been aware of it for a long time, those of us who are on the inside, and it's going to be a journey for us to try to remind the American public that we're still here and we're still alive and we're still doing really well. It's just a different art form. NECA started in an incubator warehouse space in Brattleboro, and work is now underway to build a $2.5 million training center for circus arts on the north end of town. Future graduates won't be able to work with Ringling Brothers and Barnum and & Bailey Circus, or with the Big Apple Circus, which also closed recently. But Smith says today's circus performers have a new show to create. That's Vermont Public Radio's Howard Weiss-Tisman reporting. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrew Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Our digital editor is Heather Brandon. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. If you'd like to hear more of his music, go to toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and is powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR. Thank you.